0: Of the very little evidence in this case, there were three projectiles removed from the body of Barbara Robellin after she was found. They were determined to be 22 caliber long rifle bullets, and the police report lists the specific rifling patterns, although most, if not all, of the weapons confiscated in this case were handguns, and none of which were tied to this homicide. Police followed up on leads related to other suspects in other robberies although nothing ever panned out there either. The one witness statement that did seem relevant to me was something that the store manager first told police about. A woman who had been in the store around 2 a.m. told the manager there was a white car outside the store with two black males inside and a white female at the phone booth. This woman bought a cup of coffee and was sitting in her car watching them because she thought they looked suspicious. The store owner told police that he believed the woman had reported it, but he was not sure. Police were unable to find that report, and I didn't find one in the case file either. Nor was there any documentation about whether law enforcement ever tracked this witness down. This particular statement wouldn't get much notice until around 1994, when an individual came forward with information about the Robellan homicide. In June of 1992... Some 14 years after the murder, a black male named James West, who was at that time jammed up on other charges, told an investigator he'd been taken to view the body of a female in a ditch by a man named David Stevens. As a result of that June meeting, Barbara's case was pulled for review, and after that, it was passed along to the ICE unit. The first thing they did was run background reports on both West and Stevens, and both men had records. One of their first observations in the report was, quote, It appears the suspect whom West describes
1: parallels himself. For instance, West stated Stevens had possession of several weapons. However, a review of the criminal histories revealed West had been arrested every year except 1978 and several arrests involve weapons. West mentions a short-barrel shotgun, which he saw in Stevens' possession. In 1986, West was arrested in possession of a short-barrel shotgun.
0: Now, West had several burglaries, armed robberies, batteries, cocaine possession, and a marijuana possession, all charges in Sarasota County, Florida. In the report, one of the burglaries when he was taken into custody There were two guns in the vehicle, one of which was stolen, as well as a stolen tape deck that was traced back to New Jersey. In that particular case, the DA declined prosecution for grand theft because there was no evidence to prove that he knew the gun and tape deck in his vehicle were stolen. However, burglary and possession of burglary tools charges were filed. A 22 caliber pistol had been found in the glove box as well, but it was not stolen. The report did note that this type of weapon could have been used in the Robellin homicide. Unfortunately, by the time the investigators on the Robellin case spoke with him, that weapon had been disposed of. Another of West's police reports, this one from the Bradenton Police Department, involved an attempted murder charge, and the weapon involved in that case was a 9mm, which was not consistent with the weapon used in the Robellin homicide. The vehicle used in the Commission of the Crime was a tan Buick, registered to a Pearl Stevens. The report notes the last name being the same name as the individual West was accusing of showing him Barbara's body, although in the report it states that they had not learned if that vehicle was related to David Stevens, at least at that time, and I don't see anywhere in the thousand-plus pages where that was cleared up. However, due to the light color of the car, they pointed to that witness statement from the Robellin case, where two black males in a light-colored vehicle were parked at the 7-Eleven prior to the homicide. When I reviewed this file, I noted on those documents, there was also a handwritten note that said, David Stevens owned a white Toronado at the time of the Robellin homicide. So, I guess this is where the information on these two persons of interest converge in the report. And by that, I mean we're going to need to look at them both and see what we see, which is essentially what law enforcement set out to do in 1994. So first, they tracked down both men, and both were incarcerated. West was at the Columbia Correctional Institute in Lake City, Florida, on cocaine charges. Stevens was at the Hardy County Correctional Institute for sexual offenses from a 1989 offense. He had been sentenced to 73 years. A look at his record now has a little bit more on it than police back then had to work with, but it certainly suggests that his offenses, while also including burglary and drug offenses, contain the disturbing addition of sex-related charges that West's rap sheet did not have. So obviously the next step this reviewing investigator took was to send for a copy of the medical examiner's report associated with Barbara Rebellin's case. He was specifically concerned with whether she had been the victim of sexual assault. Once that report was located, more details were learned. She was found laying face up, floating in water in a deep ditch. Her watch was recovered, the one that her husband told police he'd brought up to her that night, as was a gold wedding band. There was also a set of keys laying on her torso, although nowhere in the report does it indicate to what or where These keys belong, perhaps the store keys. Maybe they had been in her pocket, and they floated up in the water. The report mentions two ovid or round-shaped objects attached to it, which sounds to me like a keychain, although the word keychain is not specifically used. Barbara was wearing her 7-Eleven smock. The lower left pocket was ripped. She wore a polo shirt beneath it, and her bra was torn on the left cup. She was wearing underwear, long pants, and sneakers. In a subsequent report from 2012, which I'm going to get into a bit later, the following is included. Quote, In the photographs taken at the scene of the recovery of the body, it appears the pants worn by the victim have been pulled down below her pelvic bones, which are visible due to decomposition of all soft tissue. There is no soft tissue in the abdominal area. This would make impossible any attempt to determine if the victim was raped. It also appears that the red and white 7-Eleven smock has been pushed up on the torso. In my opinion, this suggests that the victim was sexually molested prior to, or subsequent to, her death. I think that opinion is certainly a possibility, but knowing where Barbara was found and under what conditions you begin to see how inconclusive these elements are. Was the ditch empty at the time her body was put there? Or did it have water? Could that water and the decomposition process have affected the way the clothing was on her body when she was found? There's nothing in this report that gets into those questions. Now, I did a recreation for you of the first time these investigators spoke with James West in 1993, because it is the only full transcript that I have and I think it's important, where possible, to let you hear the words, even if you can't hear him saying them.
1: Today's date is June twenty-third, 1992. Time is 2.30 p.m. This is a taped interview being conducted at the State Attorney's Office in Sarasota, Florida. Present during this interview will be James West, Detective Don Ladner from the Manatee County Sheriff's Department, and myself, Investigator Don Fugate from the State Attorney's Office.
0: At this point, they went through name, date of birth, social security number, and some other personal information. I'm just going to skip right through to where they get him to start talking about what he knew about the Robellin case.
1: Of course, James, you know why we're here and what we're going to talk about. We've discussed it yesterday, and you've talked with Detective Ladner in the past. I don't know that we ever told you the name, but for the record, the case number will be Manatee County Case 78102996, and this is involving a homicide investigation of a female by the name of Barbara Jean Robellin, okay? Yes, sir. If you would, in your own words, tell us from the beginning to the end what happened and of course, we'll take notes and ask you questions.
2: Okay, I'm going to tell you just like this here, all right? Uh, Me, my wife, and a guy, and his wife, right? Me and my wife were in his house, right? Well, he said, let's go take a ride. So we started riding, me and him, right? We ride around, we rode around Sarasota, and then we went to Manatee. Then we went to Palmetto. He said, I want to show you something, man. So we turned down this road, uh... I don't know the name of the street, whatever it is, but you know, it was like, um, there was a lot of woods on this street. We get down in there. We passed by an old abandoned orange grove, looked like, uh, from a white house and another band of orange groves. As we passed the white house and another band of orange groves, so he turned and he made a, um, uh, a left turn. He turned, you know, and he, he stops the car. I'd say a good hundred yards down the street. He stopped the car and he said, uh, get out and look over there. I got out and I looked. I see a body there, you know. I looked at him. He just stays sitting in the car laughing and grinning. You know, like, remembering what you, what took place there or something, you know. So I got back in the car, all right, and asked him to leave, you know, and I'm I'm watching him, trying to figure out, you know, if I'm going to be the next body or what, you know. So, uh, we left. I don't remember how the hell we got out of this place, but he knew know where he was. Know where he was going, all right? Like he'd been there before, all right? He kept smiling and laughing to himself. You know, and I'm I'm being kind of paranoid from being around him because cause I don't know what, you know, what he thought I might do because he had to be a sick person unless he wanted to get caught or something.
0: Now, there are handwritten notes on the transcript that I'm reading, and in this section, one of the officers wrote, I don't understand all this driving around to get to the crime scene.
2: Okay. He showed me the body, and I seen it, it was there, a white female, all right. It was like she had um a work shirt, a uniform, a work shirt on or something. Like, that was, a, you know, and then again, I didn't really, when I seen it, then it was like, damn, you know, this is...
1: What did he tell you
2: about the body? What did he tell me about the body? Yeah. He told me he took her from a business store or something like that, you know? he He never did, you know, really talk about it, you know? every now and then he'd, you know, he may say something and laugh and, and grin about it, you know, like it, like it really didn't bother him. It was, it wasn't the first one or something like that. And, you know, well then, damn, you know, this, this man's a uh, off man. He, he's gotta be off, but he, he, something, this was something I, I know that I was telling him, I'm not going to even say it just cause I, I may be wrong, and again, I might be right, but, uh...
1: Can you think back about the body and maybe tell us what the body looked like? Well, How was it laying? It was a female. It was a female,
2: you know, by looking at her. I could tell if it was male or female, all right? You know, it was a female body, up on this little, this oak tree in a little, like a a drainage canal. It's not a
1: big ditch now, it's a little... Like a little canal?
0: The handwriting in this section says check this with the description. This does not sound like the same place that the crime was committed.
2: A little canal or something like that there, you know? Shallow grave or whatever you want to call it. And then little branches, like somebody had thrown little, you know, like palmetto limbs, throwed a little bit of them over there and stuff. And But the palmetto looked like it had been there not too long. It was there. It wasn't stinking unless I, you know, it didn't, it didn't rest on my mind. Because I didn't really want to be there. You know, I, it was as simple as that there. I didn't want to be there, and I was glad when we left from there. And, But, you know, he he never mentioned nothing else to me about it after we, you know. It was just like, to me, the way I feel, he was thinking about it. It was just like killing a dog or a rabbit or something. He, he didn't have no uh, no pity or nothing, you know. he just, He just did it, and he just left her there. There ain't no way in hell I'm going to kill a person and then come back and laugh about it. Life's too damn short, man, and too valuable, you know. He didn't have no no self-pity, no nothing, man. He didn't care. That's why I kept this on my mind for long, you know? It was on my mind for a long time. Like you said, like I thought to myself right here, you said, did I know about before I went to prison the first time? Yes, I did. And the third time, you know? I knew about it, you know? It, I used to try to tell my old lady, and, you know, she'd say, what's wrong? And I'd say, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong, because I... I just, I kept it to myself. I didn't, I didn't want to have nothing to do with it, so I tried to block it out from my mind, man. I done, I done been around this man several times, you know, and and if a lot of people done been around him, and really, you don't really know a person, you know? Hmm. Okay, like a, a silent rage in him or something, you know? It's like, it's just actually, to me, he act like he, the more he came to my eye, you know, he got this, he got out of the car and stood, and I got her.
1: Well, now, how long ago, how long after this, he showed you this body that... He showed me this body here? I went, to,
2: I went to prison three times. Right. This right here, I think, is fairly recently, you know, before I'd be staying where I'm staying. I'm staying right now for about three years, wasn't it?
1: So, when he came back with his car the second time, and he said he got another one recently?
2: Yes, recent.
1: Let's kind of keep uh, one at a time, so we don't get confused. Okay.
0: Now, it sounds from this transcript, although it's not exactly clear, that this individual, Mr. West, is indicating that Stevens had told him about another murder. And that's what I gleaned when I was reading through this transcript. We'll get into it a bit later, but there was, in fact, another homicide related to David Stevens.
1: The other thing I need you to do was... Do you know this guy's name?
2: yeah, I know his name. I know where his mom stay at and uh I know where his wife stay at or used to stay at. It's not hard to find nobody period you all ought to know that you found me today. The guy's name's David
1: okay I just if you could refer to David for me that's that's what I was getting at with you
2: oh oh all right you know
1: when was uh when do you think best and I realize you can't remember just what day it was or anything but When was this that this happened? To the best of your memory. You know, what year? Hmm. It had to be
2: in... I'm not sure. I can't be exact now. I'm not sure. I think it was 78, 70, 78. The early part of 78. Yeah, the the early part of 78. Okay. Shit, I don't know. Maybe... But I remember it was kind of cool out there. You know, the weather. I'm not... Well, I don't know. I can't really say man right here, but...
1: I understand. You don't know for sure.
2: I've been telling you the best parts that I can remember, because, you know, it's been a long time, and it's so long and shit, man.
1: But to the best of your... Best of my ability, seventy-eight, seventy-nine. And you think probably it was cool, so it may be in the winter?
2: Maybe in the winter. Then again, it you know, I can't really relate back to then, but I believe he did it, because he, he had to do it. Why would he come show me, you know? He knew where it was, you know. He was guilty from the get-go. David had to be sick in his head. When He he, he had to be sick in his head. Ain't no way in the world I'm going to do something like that and then show anybody. So he's got to be sick.
1: Obviously, if it was kind of in a remote location, if if he knew where it was at, he must have knew something about it.
2: Uh-huh, he, he must have, yes.
1: You said that he had told you uh that he had took her from a... Store, he took... He took her
2: from a store. He didn't say what, which store.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. No, he
2: didn't say that. Now, that's up to you. But like I told you, like I said before, anywhere we went in Manatee and Palmetto, he knew wherever he was going. He knew the little back roads. Shit. I didn't even know as good as this, you know, because cause we went from off of State Road 60 or 64 to uh, drive then up to Talavas Road, down a Little Dirt Road, you know, and he skipped through the whole damn county, man, you know, and, you know, like a matter of minutes.
1: Now you said, uh, this body that he showed you. Can you, can you tell us? I realize you don't know the road, but like directions on how to get there.
2: Well, now I probably can, and again I might be wrong. He, uh, wait a minute, let me get it right. He cut me over to uh Manatee Hospital, right? Uh, a big bridge there, an ocean or a bay or whatever you want to call it, and, and a second, a second bridge where the football, that football field right there. Right? It's a road. After you pass that little football field, it's a road. And I think they just have a building. They have building houses right there not long ago. It's a road you turn and and then you hit a red light. And you get the red light and you make a a right. And we made a right and went. I'm not saying we went all out. We went so far. uh, We went so far that, like I say, what I could remember is that orange grove and that old, like an old haunted house back then, you know? Orange grove here, house here orange grove and then some a little dirt road he turned and then left and then went down here i saw uh, a couple yards and he stopped he said get out of here for a minute and i got out i grabbed me this this tree limb and i looked damn you know and it, i looked back at him you know and he said yeah i did it you did that there and, and i went and i got back in the car right and at, at the time i ain't thinking about that body man i'm thinking i'm thinking about my life you know because he showed me this here, and when we're in the woods already, and I know he got a gun. Yeah man, I know he got a gun, a big gun, you know? I don't think I want to make it out of the woods, but I'm I'm fitting to try my damnedest, you know? So I don't really want to talk to him much about that, right there with him, because I, I don't want to, you know, I didn't want nothing to trigger in his mind. it got to be a warped mind anyway to show me this here. I mean, he showed me, you know? I'm not really scared, but I'm just, because I didn't have nothing to defend myself with, alright? So he kept laughing, like I said before, he kept laughing, you know? He was remembering, remembering that time. And, and then we left and went, uh, went the back way, and we came all the way through the back way, and, and he knew where he was going.
1: Can you remember how, uh, can you remember anything about the clothes, or anything about... Only thing I can remember
2: is the, was the shirt, and it was a female body, a woman, okay? I'm not going to say she was an old woman, I'm not going to say she was a young woman. She was a woman. Now, the color of the hair, I can't... I'm not going to sit up here and lie to you. I can't tell you about the color of the hair, you know? Something in the back of my mind keeps telling me it was a light color, you know? But I'm not sure. You know, It. she's laying there with some trash over her, a little trash piled over her, and a little, like, dirt ditch, you know, a ditch.
1: But did she have
2: clothes on? She had... She... Well, I remember seeing a shirt. I'm not going to say I seen her panties or nothing, because, see, she was fully dressed, and I... I remember just looking, you know, and, and when you see something like that, you know, you, you, shit, I can't, I can't remember every detail, but it was there, the body, and, and David showed me the body, it was there, and I know by all these years, and I know, I never really did say anything about it, because I didn't want nothing, you know, I didn't want nothing to do with it, and that was it, man, that's it.
1: Okay, and I, you know, I realized some, James, we realized some of the questions that we've asked, we've done, asked you before.
2: Yeah, all of them are damn near same questions.
1: Right, we need to get it on tape. If, if you can remember how she was lying in the ditch, was she face up, face down? Well, I can't. I'm not.
2: I can't. I'm not going to agree with. I'm not going to tell you that she was face up or face down. I remember her head was. She was. She had her hair. I mean, I remember she had hair. See, facing, not straddling, but she was laying.
1: Laying lengthways of the ditch? Yeah, I think I've seen the back of...
2: I think this. i think I seen the back of her head, but I'm not sure.
1: James, just for the tape, you're kind of indicating, like, maybe the top. Yeah, yeah, top. The top side part?
2: Yeah, top side. Top side of the head. the Above the ear.
1: Back and to the back? Yeah, above the ear and to the back. Okay. I'm not... But I'm...
2: I mean, I could be wrong. You know, it, it's been a long time, and you
1: and you say the best you believe she was kind of running laying with the ditch you know not a not across it
2: with it cuz the ditch wasn't that it wasn't it wasn't no wide ditch it was like just a little just a little a little one
1: okay how about the vegetation around it wasn't it grown up or
2: you know there was vegetation around it old dead limbs like somebody had tried to you know like someone had covered up one side then again, it uh, could have been a storm or something pushed all that trash down there, but it was a lot of trash down there, you know?
1: Any trees or anything that stand out?
2: I told you when I got out, out the car, it was a little, a small oak tree. A little small oak tree, because I broke it, uh, a little twig off of it when I got out of the car. Shit, maybe a giant, man, but it was there, a oak tree. It was a little small, it was little small bushes, you know, man, and, a, and white. When I got out of the car... And had to come around and look across since I seen her. The orange trees had all the moss and stuff hanging off, like nobody ain't sprayed it or nothing. And the bushes around the orange trees was about waist high, a little higher, you know. And I, I got back in the car.
1: You remember what kind of car this was? Shit, yeah, I remember what kind of car it
2: was. It was an Oldsmobile, cream-colored Oldsmobile. Then again, now let me get, let me, let me get you right now. He had just got that car painted. It was a uh, peach he had it painted. It was, he painted it peach. Pretty paint job on it, real special paint job.
1: Had it been, what, what color prior to that? It was uh, cream, because it sat up there
2: for a long time in his yard, for a long time, and I don't know where he was, but he came home and uh and fixed that goddamn car, that Oldsmobile, tore a tore, tornado, uh, fixed some big old cars. Oh, something with uh, tornado. Yeah, it was one of them, right there. Yep, it's set right there in his yard for a long time. Shit.
1: Okay, do you know who painted it for him?
2: Uh, uh-uh. uh, no, I don't. I don't know who painted it for him. He was so secretive, you know. You see him, he talk to you. Sometimes he'll walk right by you, you know. But I can't understand why in the hell he showed me this, this here. That, what I can't understand. Why me, you know? But, you know, he kept a lot of guns. Kept other guns and stuff, and, you know, anybody ever wanted a gun, he, you know, he'll go find them. Say he wanted to let you borrow one. But he, he liked it all, shotgun, because they, uh, hard to, uh, hard to trace with the, uh, what do you call the Pellets.
1: The rifles?
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to, uh, hard once you shoot, because, you know, if you don't leave nothing behind, it's, It's nothing there for you you know, buckshot. It's hard, man. Did he tell you about it? Yeah, that's what, uh, see, he was, they was, they come from, uh, how you want to say, the old school. Uh Uh-huh. Seen him do something one morning. I just didn't, I couldn't believe it, you know. But I seen my man do it, you know. He went to the shopping center. He had a, he went into the shopping center, and as he jumped, I took a, uh, uh, to go to this plaza, I seen this short, muscle-bound dude running, running in the parking lot with a shotgun, robbing people. Except I mean, he was jumping out of one car and making you know, making up, uh, making to another car. You know, he's taking the money, wallet, and everything. You know, he he shook that dude up. You know,
1: how big is he? What's his? How tall is he?
2: He' about my height, about my height,
1: but he's chunky. Well,
2: I'm five nine, five eight, five nine. You know, and he's he's very chunky, man, very chunky, all the time. You know, he he's in good shape
1: stays in shape
2: he's in shape man One you ain't just one ain't just gonna get him
1: about how old is he
2: i couldn't answer that for you i can't i i i know you want me to you know but the boy the boy's good what he do he do best and uh
1: but y'all was in a peach colored it was peach
2: colored tour tornado peach colored tornado and you know the other day i couldn't tell you where that car was at i ain't seen that car Right, see the man he don't work, right? He come up with money. He just come up with cars, you know. You ain't working, you you he he, he changed. He come up with all these shits here. I, I show I spoke about that uh I didn't come up with cars like that here and he's he's coming up with all these different cars. He bought his wife a car, he had a truck and two other two other cars, so look.
1: A while ago you said that uh you was kinda nervous after when he showed you the body with but
2: I didn't know whether I was going to be the next body or what.
1: Right. You said you knew he had a gun.
2: Yeah, he had a he had sawed-off shotgun.
1: Okay. How do you know he had that?
2: Because I'm looking at it. I'm looking at he his face. That's what I'm seeing, you know.
1: And it's right there in the car? It was right there, right near in the car with it. Uh-huh. And you say he had a lot of guns? Do you know of any other guns that he may have had at that time?
2: I know, but look at this here. Like, at the time... Then I seen a shotgun and uh I know he had a couple of but he, many times he had give me a pistol and I mean it could have been even that there, a big pistol.
1: So you're saying a foot long?
2: No, it was a big pistol. I mean it was a big pistol, you know, he gave me he gave us something else and uh it's something happened to that gun, right? He gotten so upset about it and I'm saying, Man, it ain't nothing but an old pistol and he went and he got upset about it, so I so, I uh, yeah, I ain't gotta buy I used to wait for him right there, and he he went in and got my pistol. A pistol is a, a kind of pistol, you know? It don't make no difference what kind of pistol it is. You know, it's a pistol. Now that, I had a problem with some dudes. I went and put that gun down in some bushes, and somebody must have seen me, put it right in there, and he got it. And it was something that about that gun, and he, you know, he got upset about it. I know it wasn't no sentimental value. He got guns and not even, like, raindrops, so he... I don't know, something about that gun.
1: When, um... When he showed you the body, he told you he had done that?
2: Yeah, he say... He say, that. look, I did this here, you know, and, uh... Did he tell you how he... No, he didn't do uh, specify how he did it. But he, he he, made a statement when he got up from... When he came by that location right now in Manatee County, all he said, I did this. He didn't describe how he did or nothing. No, he he didn't. He... You know, look here, look here, I want to, anybody with common sense wouldn't know, you know, when you robbed this woman, you took her from the store, that's kidnap. That's robbery and kidnapping. Then you might as well go all the way, am I right?
0: The note jotted next to that paragraph in handwriting says, how did he know all these details? Presumably meaning how did West know about kidnapping from the store and the robbery?
1: Huh,
2: you might as well go on ahead and rape her. You're going to kill her. You know, he, he got three, got four capital crimes there. He done committed in one time, you know? So most likely, knowing Dave, he's a freak. He did what he did. He raped her, robbed her, and kidnapped her, or whatever he did. Or, And knowing him, he's a freak.
1: But he never actually told you?
2: No, he never actually it came out of his mouth and told me. Uh-uh. It's been so long.
1: After he got back in the car, it wasn't too much else said about it? No, it was just a lot of that... He was laughing
2: and you know it was like something wrong
1: let me back up and I know I'm kind of jumping around, but when I told you where we started this tape I when I told you I to just go ahead and put it in your own words, you said you and your wife and he and his wife were all together
2: we was together at a at at it was it, it was at the
1: house okay, you were at their house, okay you and him left
2: me and him left right we left we went riding. Right, we didn't want to be around a bunch of women, folk.
1: Right, and the women stayed home. Right, women stayed home. When I did come back, my lady say, "What's wrong?"
2: Still, nothing, nothing wrong. Let's go, you know, and we left. And ain't nothing ever been said, you know. She kept looking at me, you know. Ain't nothing wrong, nothing wrong. It's nothing wrong.
0: The handwritten note next to this section says, "Wonder if Dave." Could have been his accomplice.
1: James, at that time, do you, can you remember where you were living, like what the address was at the time?
2: I done stayed at so many places, man.
1: In fact, where was he living at at the time? It
2: was a long time, man. See, I was staying on old Bradenton Road, and if I'm not mistaken now, now I'm not sure, turned off uh, Highland Street, Highland Street and Winston, and some brown and white apartments, I was staying there. Man, he was staying, uh, he had a little rooming house. He had, uh, you see, he had a room, a room on those two, down the street from, uh, down the street from, uh, you know where town hall's at? Used to be a rooming house, back behind there somewhere. He had a room out there at the time. He had a room there. I, uh, I can't say any other place.
1: And after you say after y'all left there, you, you went out of there a different way than when you went in?
2: Yeah, you know... He
1: like, you know, any, any way he was
2: going, you know, like some people drive, like they get lost and make turns around and shit. This man ain't made an mistake. I'm watching him, but I'm, I'm watching him while he's going and I'm in, in case I have to duck out of the car or something and I'm watching and every now and then we'd get off the main road and we'll go on, you know, we'll go on the road past something like an old unpaved road and we'll come out to another paved road and then, uh, and then we drive another way on a paved road and another dirt road before I know we're back in Sarasota and that. I think we came out way off of uh, Carolina Road one time. Uh-huh, if I'm not mistaken now, I could be wrong, but he came coming around that road.
1: Did you and he ever talk about it after that?
2: No, no, no.
1: Ever? Did he
2: ever ask you? No, I ain't never asked him no more, but I didn't want him to be bringing it up, you know, because I, I believe he made a mistake, you know, all right? And and now, the I don't know what the hell he showed me that there for. He did, you know.
1: Did you read the newspaper or see on the news or anything? No, 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 because I wasn't in back then.
2: I, was, I wasn't I was seen on the news, you know. I, I went alone with, you know, I just...
1: So as far as you know, that person's never been found or... Never been
2: found, never, nothing. I haven't as far, as far as I know. I don't know nothing else about, you know, putting it like there, you know. If y'all convicted anybody, anything to me in my heart, if you convicted the wrong man, you know if If you convicted somebody and he all let me tell you something he also had a silent partner, some boy because he's I know for a fact ain't no way in the world he could have done all that there everything he did over the year and and couldn't have nobody that you rely on he had to have somebody had to be somebody else had to be around him
1: you think somebody else was with him when he done this? I don't know what he
2: was capable I don't know if he was capable of doing it himself
1: I'm gonna ask you one other thing James what why are you wanting to tell us this?
2: Look here, look here. I know you was going to come up with that, you know? I want out of here, ain't no secret. I want out of here, and I I want, look at here. I don't know what you're going to make of this, what, what's going to happen, you know? And shit. But I need, I need help. I ain't asking for much, and then I could get more than what I'm asking for, and I'm not asking for much, though. Just get out of here, that's all. I'm tired of it being on the back of my mind, you know? Because it's been there a long time.
0: Handwritten next to this part, they wrote, Sounds like a man with a guilty conscience.
2: Like I say before, I didn't have to go. Prison, narrow time, you know. I could have been said, and he, you know, said something about this here, you know, back then. What you did is your business and what I did is my business, okay? I I used to think about it all the time. He was sitting in jail. He's thinking about it. Say, damn, now for... From now on I'll just, you know, argue within myself, you know. Don't do that thing, man. I got tired of arguing with myself. I mean, I'm I'm tired of the lifestyle. I don't I don't live that lifestyle. I'm tired of that, you know. I got on both sides. I got the law after me and I got, you know, it's a girl and I'm in the middle. I'm tired, man. I see it.
0: Based on the documents in the report, James West also took a polygraph test on that same day, the same day as the interview. He was asked four questions. Number one, did David Stevens take you to Palmetto and show you the body of a woman in a canal? His answer, yes. Did David Stevens tell you that he took the lady from the business and had done the job causing her death? Answer, yes. Number three, were you present in October 1978 when the woman from the store was killed? Answer, no. Number four, did you help take the woman from the store in October of 1978? Answer, no. The polygraph examiner wrote at the end of his report, quote, based on the foregoing analysis, James West was deceptive in answering relevant questions three and four and truthful in answering the relevant questions 1 and 2 during the polygraph examination. So according to that examiner, to the questions, were you present in October of 1978 when the woman from the store was killed, and did you help take the woman from the store in October of 1978, he did not answer truthfully. One of my main takeaways from that interview was West, saying Robellin was kidnapped from the store, raped and killed, despite no questioning, at least in this interview, about rape at all. It was never brought up. It's unclear to me, though, whether that did come up in any previous discussions with these investigators that they may have had before they began recording, because it is clear that there was a previous discussion before that recording began. That's a problem, in my opinion. It is important to know exactly what was discussed with a person of interest before any recorded interviews began. You can't thoroughly assess whether he was fed any information beforehand without that information. So investigators who come along later to do just that are at a bit of a disadvantage. It does seem that Weston Stevens had some kind of relationship, and he was probably minimizing it. As he did describe getting guns from him and them getting together with their wives and hanging out, the true extent of their relationship is unclear. I do think police were correct in wondering if the two men could have committed the crime together. In December of 1994, police went back to interview West, in prison, a second time. He again waived his right to remain silent and gave them another statement, further adding the following details according to a police summary, and that's all I have on this interview. A summary. It's not a full transcript. West said in this interview that Stevens told him he took the girl from a 7-Eleven store, specifically. He didn't mention the specific store the last time. He also said the female body in the ditch was wearing a 7-Eleven jacket. He elaborated that when West was viewing the body in the ditch, Stevens said to him, that's some of my work. And after getting back into the car and leaving the scene, Stevens told West he had killed the girl. He also reiterated that Stevens had taken him to see the body in a cream-colored tornado. And when he was asked, He said he believed the body had not been in the ditch very long when he viewed it. He said after looking at it, Stevens drove to a 7-Eleven store not far from where he saw the body. While he couldn't recall the exact words, West said that Stevens had indicated that the store that they were at was the same store that Stevens took the woman from. This store, and the location that West pointed out was on US-41, on the west side of the road, at the northeast corner of the intersection. He marked this location on a diagram for investigators. West also drew a rough sketch of how the body was laying in the ditch in relation to how the car was parked beside the ditch on the dirt road. He told police he stepped out of the car and stood by the door, and Stevens opened the driver's door and stood on the rocker panel of the car while they looked at the body. Police noted that the sketch was consistent with the photograph taken at the crime scene in relation to the direction of the body as it was found in the ditch next to the dirt road. On the same day, David Stevens was also interviewed at the facility where he was incarcerated. The summary indicates that prior to beginning that interview, he was advised that they wished to speak with him about information that they got from James West. They asked if he knew West and he responded, yes, he did. Then he asked them what West was saying, and the investigator told him they couldn't proceed until he had been advised of his Miranda rights and signed a waiver. Once he did so, he was told the purpose of the interview was to discuss a murder from 1978 that West told them David Stevens was responsible for. Stevens responded by grinning and laughing, which they qualified in their notes as nervous laughter. They asked him if there was any reason West would be implicating him in a murder. Did they have a disagreement? Any bad blood? Were their families feuding? Had they dated the same women? Anything of the sort? David Stevens answered no to all of these. He could give no explanation as to why West would be making these allegations against him. Multiple times during the interview, he essentially told them he didn't believe West had made any statements about him. So then police showed him a notebook they were using to take notes about the investigation This summary indicates that one short sentence was read from a previous sworn statement of James West, at which time David appeared to be convinced, but he still made no admission. I do not have any idea what that sentence was that they read, but they did say that David appeared to be convinced after hearing that, at least convinced that West had said it. So they asked Stevens point-blank if he'd ever been involved in a murder and if he had ever shown West where the body was disposed of. When he denied any knowledge or involvement, the investigators jotted down the note that he looked away from them and wasn't making eye contact, displaying signs that they took to believe were deceptive, including crossing his arms and his legs in a defensive pose. Stevens tried to assert that he had been in prison in 1978 when the murder happened. Investigators said, Nope. No, you weren't. We checked. Then he said he didn't think he was even friends with West back then in 1978, that he didn't even meet him until 1983. He said that they did commit some armed robberies, but essentially they were street corner drug dealers and no one got hurt. He said their weapon of choice was a shotgun, but he wouldn't answer when they asked what other guns he might have owned. Four or five times during their interview, the investigators say he made this statement, When it comes down to the wire, I'll burn his ass. He wouldn't explain what that meant, but they took it to mean that he would give a statement that would implicate West. However, they also noted that when he was first informed about the homicide, his very first statement was, I never did anything heavy like this with him. The investigators left him with the understanding that they were investigating this homicide, and they might need to return for additional information. His reply was calm and cool. Come on back. This case would continue to languish for years, although not for their lack of trying. Law enforcement did multiple reviews. The problem is that they had no hard evidence. There were also significant problems with how the case was documented that made any prosecution problematic. In 2010, another investigator wrote a summary of his findings and he mentioned that there was speculation in the report that Barbara Robellin was having a relationship with another unidentified man. The report indicates that he may have driven a green truck and been of, quote, foul disposition. But that investigator concluded that none of those speculations were supported by any affidavits or taped interviews. He said that early reports had noted that Harry Robellin, who was initially upset, later displayed an absence of emotion concerning her death. By the time of that review, Mr. Robellin had already died. He died in April of 2008. This investigator said that the information gleaned from Henry Lee Lucas was vague and not consistent with the facts of this case. Then he mentioned James West's story about Stevens and the fact that Stevens denied any knowledge of the crime. His conclusion at the end of that report? Quote, There is no physical evidence, known witnesses, or other leads which would justify activating this case. But the thing is, detectives don't quit just because a case is tough. In many of the cold cases that I have researched, the case file has been reviewed multiple times with any additional information noted and added to the file and, just like these previous investigators have done, areas that need work, are pointed out for the next set of eyes to open the file. Two years later in 2012, another review was done of Barbara Robellin's case, and the summary review is the most thorough of all the reinvestigation report summaries, weighing in at 18 pages. It is essentially the final word on this case. At least in the documents that I was supplied, nothing occurred after this in the file that was sent to me. So that report starts out with the facts of the case, describes the location as desolate in nature, noting that the area built up around it in the ensuing years, and when they visited the scenes, a lot of the physical features no longer exist. Under the heading of motive, it says that it appears to be a simple robbery and abduction of a convenience store clerk, a crime of opportunity, and no motive other than financial gain, with the potential of sexual battery being possible nothing had been developed to prove otherwise this investigator also believed that there was nothing developed to suggest that the victim had a boyfriend despite the multiple references to such in the report james west is listed in that report as a suspect and that he came to the attention of law enforcement several years after the crime when he was arrested in sarasota in possession of a 22 caliber firearm investigators had looked at a number of burglary suspects with weapons that could have been used in the Robellin homicide. This weapon was disposed of by the time the Manatee County Sheriff's Office learned of West's arrest, so ballistics were not possible. And this report goes more into the inconsistencies in his story than any of the other reports. West told investigators that Stevens admitted to shooting the victim in the head. Barbara Robellan was shot in the torso. He claimed that he could see the back of the victim's head, but the body was lying face up. West was adamant in that second interview that the body was not in a ditch. The investigator did say, though, that it was possible Stevens could have gone back to the area after showing West the body and pushed the body into the ditch, perhaps to hide it better. This investigator admitted that when he read the transcript interview with Henry Lee Lucas, he believed Lucas was either the murderer with Tool, or he'd gotten a lot of information from somewhere because, quote,
1: in his many pages of ramblings of up to 360 murders, he includes a very plausible rendition of what might have happened to our victim. Basically, Lucas claimed that he and Tool were simply riding around the country murdering people on almost a daily basis, robbing them, raping them, disposing of the bodies, and stealing money and jewelry which was then disposed of at flea markets. He also claimed that Toole raped our victim in the back seat of a Toronado while Lucas drove aimlessly around the rural neighborhood of the 7-Eleven. He claims the victim's screaming upset him so much, he simply reached for one of several guns on the front seat of the car and reached over the front seat and shot her three times. Our victim had been shot three times. He says he shot her once in the head and twice in the body. There was no headshot. I thought maybe he could have been mistaken, or he lied, or he'd forgotten due to the fact that this statement was taken 16 years after the crime. He described this woman's clothing, the store, the area, and the disposal of the body. Many of his statements are vague and ultimately there is not a single piece of forensic evidence which would tie him and Tool to this crime. He did not say the body was disposed of in a ditch. He claimed Tool took care of the body, thereby excusing him from actually saying the body was disposed of in a ditch. He claimed the gun he used to shoot the victim was a 22 caliber and that after shooting the victim, he placed the gun in the glove compartment. He claims he sold the gun several years later to a man in St. Louis, Missouri, He claimed that after Toole raped the victim and was shot to death, that they stopped along the road not very far from the store. The ditch in which the body was found was 2.6 miles from the 7-Eleven. He claimed Otis Toole pulled the victim by her arms from the back seat. Lucas describes the victim as being 5'9", which is too tall for our victim, who was 5'1". He did have the correct approximate weight, at 125 pounds he even spoke about the victim wearing a necklace but i later learned he said many of his victims were wearing necklaces but perhaps the most baffling incident during the interview had to do with a photo lineup shown to lucas during the interview a six photo lineup of our victim and five other women in similar poses was presented to him he identified the photo of Barbara Jean Robellin as resembling the victim he and Toole abducted and murdered in 1978. He even made a notation on the back of the photo, confirming his ID and the photo was signed by him and the detectives conducting the interview. These photos are in the case file. Detective Clages, who is now, I believe, with the FDLE, said that he thought the homicide of Barbara Jean Robellin fit the M.O. of Toole and Lucas.
0: Now, the next part of this investigator's report discusses crime scene photographs and diagrams.
1: From an evidentiary and forensic standpoint, the photographs are not properly identified in any manner. It would be impossible to successfully present these photos in a court of law if anyone were eventually arrested and prosecuted for the crime. They are not dated and they're without information as to what is being shown in the photo, who took the photos, and when they're taken. It's left up to the viewer to reach his or her conclusions as to what the photographs represent. Of notable deficiency is the fact that there are no photographs of the 7-Eleven store. Photographs could have been extremely helpful as Henry Lee Lucas said that he struck the clerk with a gun and she fell against a display, knocking it over. If there was a photograph showing that display on the ground, it could support the confession. But a report in the file indicates that other than the clerk missing from the store and money missing from the register, nothing seemed amiss in the store.
0: Photographs taken at the scene did show a large dead tree near where the body was found, and in one of the statements from James West, he did describe the body he observed near a large tree. The investigators said that because the entire area is changed now, those pictures and drawings would be very important in any trial context, and unfortunately, they're just not up to par to be admitted as evidence. It is in this report that it documents the pants of the victim being depicted in one photo as having been pulled down below her pelvic bones, with her smock being pushed up on her torso.
1: The autopsy report made no comment with regard. To the position of clothing found remaining on the victim. In our opinion, this is a significant deficiency in the report. The fact that the pants appear to be pulled down below the visible pelvic bones suggests that the victim was raped after her abduction.
0: Under the heading, Convert Case File to Electronic Format, the investigator wrote,
1: Not going to be done at this time. Some of the materials in the black ring binder have already been scanned, but I do not believe the rest of the file has been or will be scanned.
0: It also says that there is no mention of what happened to the piece of gray knit fabric that was recovered from the scene, only that it was never commented on in the file. Among the other notes is the fact that the cash register tape from the 7-Eleven was reviewed with the manager, and while some information was gained, The investigating officers never took possession of it.
1: If it had been, that also could have corroborated or debunked the story of Henry Lee Lucas, who told investigators that he had purchased five packs of cigarettes about 45 minutes to an hour before returning to the store to rob it.
0: This report also mentions that register receipt in relation to that person of interest, Lee McWilliams, the hitchhiker who fell asleep in the Goodwill box.
1: He has been checked out, and he was not a suspect or person of interest.
0: I actually don't know that to be factually accurate. In fact, there were multiple instances where law enforcement tried, to no avail, to track McWilliams down after he gave erroneous employer information. That individual also had a record in multiple states. I did my own research on McWilliams, and I learned that he had a sordid criminal history that began when he was quite young. Newspaper accounts from 1962, when he was just 22 years old, paint a picture of him as one of five men that escaped the Delaware State Mental Hospital for the Criminally Insane after jumping two attendants who were bringing them back from outside recreation time. One of those attendants was beaten unconscious by McWilliams. The other was locked inside a room on the ward. The would-be escapees took the attendants' keys but found that none of them unlocked the outside doors. Their plan B was going back outside to the courtyard and causing a short circuit in the electronic fence before climbing over it. One of the men in this group had pled guilty to second-degree murder and had been sentenced to life for stabbing a man. Another was serving a sentence for assault. Yet, in newspaper accounts, police that were looking for the three called McWilliams the most dangerous of the group saying that he had led the pack in the breakout. So, they're calling him more dangerous than the guys who had pled guilty to second-degree murder and assault. McWilliams was serving his time in that state mental hospital for robbing a 16-year-old attendant at Bill City Service Station in Tallyville, Delaware, on March fourteenth, 1960. According to the reports, McWilliams entered the station and slugged the youthful attendant, James Best, rifled the cash register, and escaped while his two cohorts in crime chatted up the other 21-year-old gas station attendant, who'd been counting receipts before closing shop for the night. The kid that was slugged? His jaw was fractured in 18 places. McWilliams was sentenced to five years in jail, but I'm not sure what led to him ending up in the state mental hospital. Another newspaper article described how, at 20 years old, On the eve of his wedding in 1958, McWilliams had been arrested at the Delaware Hospital Emergency Room for being drunk. Once he was brought down to the station, they learned that he had a bunch of old traffic violations where he had ignored three bench warrants and a court summons. It came out in court that he'd been picked up in Texas earlier the previous year, but the Attorney General's office didn't bother to extradite him because they didn't feel that the offenses warranted the expense. Well, the judge that day, after his wedding, he wasn't playing so nice. He ordered a contempt charge and sentenced McWilliams to 260 days in jail for the laundry list of fines associated with his outstanding charges, which also included an assault and battery from 1957. He must have divorced because he remarried in April of 1969 to Gloria Laffey in Elkton, Maryland. Gloria died in 1971 in some sort of auto-pedestrian accident. All of this to say the guy who fell asleep in the Goodwill box had a record, and nothing in the report indicated that they had, one, put all that together, and two, bothered to rule him out. The investigator who did this final review in 2012 did say this of McWilliams.
1: There's nothing in this file that reflects a statement was taken from him. This would seem to have been important if he made a purchase from the victim and was later still near the scene after she was abducted. The crime scene tech entered a comment in the file that he had taken a black-and-white photograph of Lee McWilliams, but it could not be located in the file.
0: I will say this. The only thing that Lee Franklin McWilliams' alleged alibi has going for it is that according to him, and that's all we have to go on, He had been hitchhiking, unsuccessfully, and then he climbed in a goodwill box and fell asleep for a while. This suggests that he didn't have a vehicle nearby. Thus, transporting Barbara from the store to where her body was found a few miles away doesn't seem possible. That's if we take his word for the fact that he was hitchhiking and didn't have a vehicle parked somewhere nearby. Although if he did, I'm not sure why he would have fallen asleep in the goodwill box. Unless he was drunk. There's nothing in the report that suggests that law enforcement ever bothered to verify that, though. It's not even clear if police opened that Goodwill box and found him asleep, which could also have technically been his hiding place, or whether he climbed out when police started to arrive and that's when he was seen and interviewed. So I think we have to chalk him up to being one possible person of interest that was never ruled out. But now I want to get back to the other two, West and Stevens who also cannot be ruled out. In his final re-interview, the investigator writes, quote,
1: Subsequent confessions by Lucas suggest that a cream-colored Oldsmobile tornado might have been involved.
0: This also appears to be factually inaccurate. It was James West who told investigators that David Stevens drove him to see a body in a cream-colored tornado that was later painted peach the writer of that report seemingly got the information from different suspects confused. Or, someone who interviewed Henry Lee Lucas fed him that information and he regurgitated it back to them. All in all, though, this last report is detailed and thorough. He even went to the trouble of contacting a current 7-Eleven employee who told him that she had three name tags, so he did not see any significance in the fact that a name tag was found at the Robelin home. And this investigator also concluded that there was nothing in the report to support any negative statements toward Harry Robellin, Barbara's husband, nor was there anything in the file which supported the claim that she had a boyfriend. This report says that James West and David Stevens continue to be persons of interest. It is probable that West and Stevens were involved in several crimes in the Sarasota-Manatee area. They may, in fact, have committed this crime involving our victim, but we don't have any credible proof and no forensic evidence which would tie them to the crime. David Stevens was incarcerated at the time of this report, with an estimated release date of 2025. This report ended with a general conclusion that I don't mind saying is pretty damn unsatisfying.
1: We see nothing to be gained by reopening this file for further activity. Short of Mr. Stevens confessing to the murder, there's nothing to tie him to the crime except the statement of James West, who is not exactly a credible individual. The confession of Stevens would have to be supported by credible, admissible evidence, and it is our opinion that much, if not most, of the photographic evidence in the file would not be admissible in a court of law. Mr. Stevens is not likely to confess and stands a probable chance of being released from jail prior to 2025.
0: Well, not exactly. I've told you guys before that I'm not sure that I believe in God, although I am certainly not opposed to being wrong in that regard. What I do believe in is people, their energy, and the idea of something akin to karma. I think often there's some greater energy at play that can't be explained other than to say, well, damn, that worked out okay. Some sort of cosmic realigning or retribution or redistribution that occurs. And I think if you're someone who, after listening to this episode, thinks, yeah, there's no evidence, but I bet that Stevens guy probably did it. Damn shame he won't pay for it. Well, if that's you, you're going to want to listen to the next episode. This report, as devastating as it is when you put it into black and white, is a perfect example of what we don't often see from the outside, a point-by-point map of how and why a case essentially died. There are hard truths to be had when you are the one standing in front of a desk filled with unsolved cases and you are filing them in order of most to least solvable. That's what they take into account when investigators review these cold cases, the solvability factor. The ones that have the best chance of a positive outcome are generally the ones that float to the top of the pile. And while that might seem unfair, it is a pretty common sense approach. With limited resources, time, money, manpower, I don't know of any other way that you could approach it. But none of that is anything that a family member or friend of a victim of a violent crime wants to hear and i damn sure don't want to be the one saying it but it's true it's reality and i don't think that there is any utility in shying away from reality when it's the only thing grounding us all in the here and now and that's why i'm not opposed to catching a glimpse of that karmic type of problem solving because it is those moments that help the former go down just a little easier Hang in there with me for one more episode in this series, would you?